All right, um, let's pray and jump in. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you so much because you are good. You're good when we're not good. You're faithful when we're not faithful. You're loving when we're not loving. You're compassionate when we have no compassion. You are everything we are not, yet you still choose to put up with our sorry souls. You are good. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your hand in our lives. Thank you for all that you are doing, all that you will do in spite of us because you've chosen to love us. God, we are dependent on you for everything. You increase so that we might decrease. And in this moment, I ask very personally, God, let me hide behind the cross so that you're light would shine. Let your truth come forward. Let our hearts be open to hear it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It's an honor to be with you today. If you've been tracking, we've been going through the warrior, David, um, amazing warrior in scripture. We've been looking at his life, looking at his story, and it is my responsibility to continue that. Today, we're going to talk about the warrior's restoration, the warrior's restoration. But before we do, let me first tell you, I love David. I love David. I became a Christian at 16 years old. And I like David because he was full of passion and yet he could fight. And coming from Jersey, you know, that was a good thing. <laughs> and I was watching him, and I'd look at his story, and it was so encouraging. And I'm like, David is the man. Crazy about David. I used to watch it, uh, read his story, and it's like the Bible was coming alive. And it was like, wow, this dude is thinking incredible. It spoke to me. He was like a worshiper that was like full on. You know, often manhood is measured in macho. David didn't have to be macho. He just was. You know what I mean? I'm David. No, he was just who he was. Like, pick a fight. Watch what happened. I mean, David was awesome. And as a young believer, I watched David with such anticipation and I read the stories of David and and it just inspired me like when he was a young man and a giant was out there and the king was peeing himself. (laughs) David went out and faced him and beat him. And I'm like, you know it. Don't mess with David. Back off him. Crazy about David. Then he went on and Saul was trying to kill him and Saul couldn't kill him. And it's like Saul was throwing a spear and he was like, psych. You know, it was, all, it was like the Matrix. Before it was the Matrix, yeah, you're crazy. I mean, it was incredible. And then when you look at like David and the mighty men, have you ever looked at that? These dudes were ridiculous. One dude like went down and fought a lion in a pit on a snowy day. And it was so amazing that it actually said he went down, fought a lion in a pit on a snowy day. I don't know about you, but next time you go to the zoo, if you think that dude wasn't a bad dude, jump in the lion's day and see what happened. Don't even got to be a snowy day. See what happens. It's called lion food. And this dude did it, and, and, and their other guys, they like were back-to-back and fighting in the field and fighting and to the point to where like their, their weapons were in their hands. As a young man, David stinking rocks. Like, yeah! And then we get to the story of David and Bathsheba. 
And David let me down. I couldn't, I couldn't reconcile the thought of David, this mighty man of God, passionate. You look at the Psalms and the things he wrote, and then you look at the other side of this guy that had such a horrible failure. And if you don't know the story, I'll tell you in just a minute. But David, as awesome as he was, he had fallen morally in a terrible way. And this guy that was a hero to me, I was all of a sudden looking at like, what? And I just couldn't reconcile it. It didn't make sense. It didn't work for me. Uh, If you're super spiritual in here, I couldn't theologically understand it. How could somebody so amazing fall so hard, fail so miserably? It did not make sense. And I appreciated David so much because of his victories. That's why I liked him. I liked him because he kicked butt, took names. You know, I mean, literally, in the Bible, it's written. He beat up so-and-so. What? Philistines, Ammonites, and a whole bunch of otherites. You know, it's just, you know, it's just, the names are weird. But, you know, David did it, and, and it was like, I loved him. But as a young man, I appreciated it because I, I, I went from like um, gangbanging in Camden, New Jersey for a while and then just like overall being a bad kid, putting people through windows and stuff. Don't judge me. <laughs> to being this guy that was in love with Jesus and a lot of attention was being paid to this young preacher who had fallen in love with Jesus and gone crazy. And we remember he's Joanne's boy. It's wild. And all of a sudden he's come to Jesus. You know, he got saved. Really? If he got saved, that's crazy. He, like, he's like really saved. Like he's like that Christian that's like crazy saved. I was that guy reaching people for Jesus in my high school. I was a superhero in the Christian community. I walked in authority. You know, I, if you're Pentecostal, I just feel like I could blow on people when they just fall out and worship God. It was powerful. You don't even know. I was like, David, I was awesome. And I knew it. Walk in the room. You want to hear from God today or you want to fight? Either way, we can work it out. I mean, that's who I was. And I got to college and same deal. And I'm doing crazy stuff on campus. And I'm known as this guy that loves Jesus and is making a difference. And, 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 and great things are happening. And I had victory upon victory. And I'm really like reading David now. It's like, yeah, David, I got you, boy. I'm with you, man. And I still don't get that you and the woman issue. But I am with you in your victories. And then it happened. I met this girl. She was pretty. She loved God. Like passionate for him. She was making a difference on her campus for Jesus. I'd never met anyone that was as awesome as me. (laughs) But she was more awesome than me. I think God wants me to marry her. I felt that in everything in me. And then we started dating without any accountability. We started dating without any wisdom. And in short order, we started getting real dumb. And we didn't have sex, but we did just about everything else. And I remember in that moment the brokenness I felt. And some of you are like, well, well you didn't do anything. Well, we did something. But God requires purity. That's his standard for our lives. 
And we had failed him, and it was my first big failure. And in that moment, I understood David like never before. I understood how we were one decision away from wrecking our lives. I understood that between, there's a thin line between victory and failure. And how all of us, we're one decision away, just one, from ruining everything we've done to be successful. We're one decision away. And in that moment, I realized David like I never had. I understood him as a man. I identified with David. Now, just so you know the rest of the story, God is a redeemer and he's a restorer. Today we're talking about the warrior's restoration. That young lady, um, after she and I got some work done on us, we, we got married and we've been married for 15 years. And she's still pretty. She's still more awesome than me. But um, you get what I'm saying? And that, that is kind of the idea of, of what we're talking about today. It's how this warrior goes through this horrible situation and then comes out restored, how God restored him. And in case you missed it, in case you don't know the story, David saw a pretty woman. On, he was on the roof. He saw a pretty woman bathing. And he was captured by her and said, go get her. Bring her to me now. And they bought her, and the dudes that bought her were kind of like, hey, we bought her, but she's Uriah the Hittite's wife. She's married to another guy, and that dude is fighting for you on the front lines right now. David says, I could care less. I'm... It's on. He sleeps with her, sends her home, finds out that she's pregnant, and he has to figure something out. So what does David do? David calls the guy back from war. Hangs out with him and says, hey, go home, spend time with your wife. So that he could pretend that she got pregnant by her husband. But the dude loved David more than David loved him. So we turn around and David is perplexed what to do. David gets the dude drunk and then tries to get him to go home. Still doesn't work. So David comes up with a plan. This is what we're going to do. You're going to go back to war. But he sent him with a note and told Joab, the head of the army, Put him where he can get killed. And not only did he get killed, but a couple other guys got killed around him too. And then David went and took the man and made the man's wife his wife. I don't know about you, but come on, that's pretty scandalous. It was funny when I used to read the Bible and people said, the Bible's so boring. It's like, are you reading the same book? That is intrigue. Adultery, sex, murder. Read through Kings. It's like Game of Thrones before Game of Thrones. Less dragons. But it was amazing reading these stories. And when I looked at David, it was like, I can't believe he did that. Somebody so awesome, so amazing would mar himself with this woman in this situation and Killing this guy. But like I said, I've understood him at a new level. And David, not, he, he thinks he's gotten away with it. He thinks he's gotten away with it. He thinks nobody found him out. How many of you know that even though people may not know what you did, God always know what you did? 
He knows what you have done. He saw it all. And sometimes we can think we've gotten away with something and God is like, I saw it. So Nathan, who's the prophet, he's kind of the next big prophet after Samuel, the prophet, the guy that actually made David king, anointed him king. Um, Nathan comes and he goes, king, I got to tell you something now. Let me tell you a, a little bit. Kings at that time judged. They decided who was right and was wrong. And people would bring their issues and the kings would go, okay, I think this is right. I think this is wrong. Nathan comes and got, I got a, I got a humdinger for you. I got a cool story. You're going to love this. And it, it, it's going to make you mad. But listen, there's this rich guy. He has like a whole bunch of land and a whole bunch of animals and a whole lot of stuff. And a poor guy that has nothing. Nothing at all but one lamb. That lamb is his entire future. So he loved that lamb. Took care of that lamb. Hugged the lamb. Had the lamb eat at his own table. He loved this lamb like it was a child. That lamb was so important to him. It was the best he had. It was all he had. But then the rich man had a buddy of his come in town. And he was hungry. So this rich dude had the nerve to go and take the lamb from the poor guy so he could feed his friend. He had a whole bunch of animals of his own, but he went and got the poor guy's lamb to feed his friend. David loses it. No, he didn't. I mean, he just, David went off. No, that dude needs to die and he needs to give that guy four times what he took from him. And Nathan said, David, you the man. David said, I know, I'm awful. And Nathan said, no, David, you the man. Now, we'll stop here for a second. We're going to take a pit stop. And learn our first lesson. And that was 1 Samuel 12, 1 through 6. Our first lesson is it's wrong to hold others to a higher standard than the one we have for ourselves. It is wrong to hold others to a higher standard than the one we have for ourselves. You see, David went off because this guy took another guy's lamb. But David took another guy's wife and then got the guy killed. I don't know if you're weighing sin, but David killed a dude and took his wife. It's a little bit worse than taking somebody's animal. But David saw that mistake a whole lot worse than he saw his own. And don't we do that all the time? We look at other people. And what they're doing is so much worse than what we're doing. We put on our judgy face. I do that to people. When somebody screws up, I go, this is my face when I'm judging you. And we get all judgy, but the reality is we're doing the same thing. And we hold them to a standard up here and we're down here. Let me help you for a second. It is never good when you see people as us and them. Because that says, I put myself in a seat of authority. I put myself as the one that can determine what's right and what's wrong. 
And it puts us in this unfair equation. But David didn't see himself in the same light that he saw this other guy. This other guy was horrible. This rich man was a terrible person, but David somehow was still okay. You see, as parents, we can make that mistake sometimes. See, when kids are small, we can give them the don't do this, don't do that. Why? Because they're kids. You don't throw your keys to your five-year-old and say, go get something from the store. But when that five-year-old becomes a 16-year-old and we tell them, oh, don't text and drive, and they see us texting and driving, when we tell them don't smoke and they see us smoking, then the hypocrisy is apparent. You see, do as I say and not as I do doesn't really work with adults or young adults because we can see the hypocrisy and the problem. And we can do that with other people. We can hold people to another standard and they can be them and they can make their mistakes and you're just bad and you're just ruined and you're just wrecked, but we can see no fault in ourselves. Let me help you. I learned this years ago. It's a principle that's worked very well for me. I've learned to make excuses for others and leave none for myself. Did you catch that? I make excuses for others and leave none to myself. So you interact with somebody and they have an attitude. Maybe they had a hard day. Maybe their car just broke down. Maybe they got in an argument with their spouse. I'm making excuses for them. I'm letting them off the hook. You get away, but I don't give myself that same room. Why? Because it keeps me in the safe place. It keeps me from judging you with a different standard that I have. But isn't that something that Jesus taught us? How are you going to get the speck out of somebody else's eye and you got a beam hanging out your face? Because we can feel self-righteous in our own right and they're messed up, but we don't realize that we got issues ourselves. Okay, that was an amen moment. And then when you say it in a concert, nobody knows what I'm talking about you. It's okay. Look straight ahead. Am I the only one that can have a tendency to do that? Look at the little tiny issues in other people's lives and I have large, overwhelming issues in my own. We all have that hypocrisy in us, don't we? So that little device is something I do to keep myself in a safe place, to keep myself from looking at somebody worse than I see myself. It allows me to offer grace to other people while at the same time trying to be who God wants me to be. And so we pick up pretty much right there at uh, 2 Samuel 12, verse 7, and it says, Nathan said to David, you are the man. You're the one that did it. Thus says the Lord God of Israel. Now, if God has to pronounce himself, thus says the Lord God of Israel, you might be in trouble. David is in trouble. Now, you got to hear the attitude that God has as he's talking to David. You can't just read it and thus says the Lord God of Israel. No, 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 no. This is what God said to you. God is mad at David. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if this were too little, 
I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do this evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. Here's our second lesson. When we repent of our sin, God shows us mercy. I heard like one amen. I don't think you heard it. I'm going to say it again. We're going to rewind. And then we're going to say amen together because that's a crazy thought. When we repent of our sin, God shows us mercy. Now, some of you, if you're not in the Christian environment, you may not understand mercy. Mercy is that thing that you get when you deserve a penalty for what you've done, but you don't get it. I like mercy. I need mercy. Mercy is a good thing. Now, what does it mean to repent? To repent means you're going this way towards evil. You turn and you go to God. It's a 180. It's changing your mind, changing your decision from that to this. When you repent, God shows you mercy. We need God's mercy. If you've ever messed up, screwed up, ruined it, missed the mark, wrecked yourself sin-wise, you need mercy. Mercy is when you don't get what you deserve. Mercy's a good thing. I like mercy, and I cannot lie. Though other people can, I'm sorry, it's a different song. It's not about mercy. That's about something else. Sorry, my, my bad. Grew up in the 90s. Um, mercy's a good thing. Mercy's beautiful. I love that God gives us mercy. And I don't know if you noticed, but the moment David said, I've sinned against the Lord, immediately the Lord, Nathan said, the Lord has put away your sin. God steps in right away when we're willing to repent. God doesn't wait. I'm so glad that God doesn't wait to show us mercy. He shows us mercy immediately. He comes right away to say, I have you. God wants us to be right more than we want to be right. Y'all are missing all the amen moments. I'm going to start amening myself. God doesn't wait to step in to say, I got you. He steps in immediately. I'm so glad for the immediate grace and mercy of God. That he's not waiting for some prescribed moment, the moment I go, God, I messed it up. I wrecked my life. I sinned. God goes, yes, because repentance is the key to unlock the door of God's mercy. 
God says, I want you to be right more than you want to be right. I just need you to come and go, I screwed up. And we, like David, are so easy to try to hide and act like we didn't make the mistake. And God's like, no, 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 come to me with that. Because the moment you do, mercy is available. I love God's mercy. There's a, a music artist, a Christian guy that's a worship leader. I love a song he wrote called Mercy. Listen to the lyrics. It says, hide me under your wings of grace. Let your love be my hiding place. Wash me clean. Come make me holy. I deserve all the worse, but you offer mercy. My wife and I often have this song playing in the house. I deserve all the worse, but you offer mercy. You see, some of you are right on the edge of wrecking your life. You know you've been making bad decision after bad decision, and you deserve all the worse, but you know you need God's mercy. Some of you, you just screwed up. You just made a big mistake. You've just done something really dumb and you know you deserve all the worst, but you are asking God for mercy. I'm so glad that no matter how bad I am, no matter how far I go, no matter how much I try to wreck my life, no matter how much I sin, God is always ready to offer me mercy. I don't have to get what I deserve. God loves me and he's trying to give me his mercy. And God steps in immediately and does that. Lesson number three, we must face the consequences of our sin. We must face the consequences of our sin. I will be honest with you, I don't like that. I don't like the consequences. I prefer that that wasn't true, although it is. I don't like having to deal with the consequences. I, I prefer that God would give me mercy and it just be done. Thank you. I, I'm good. Thank you. But we have to face the consequences of our sin. We can't hide. David's consequences were pretty severe. The Bible says, behold, I'll raise up evil against you in your own house. Look at what happened to David. One of David's sons raped one of David's daughters. He raped his sister. And then one of the other brothers killed the first son. The child that they conceived died. And then the son that killed the other brother took over the kingdom and had sex with a couple of David's wives on the roof. So everybody could see, just like God said it would happen. You tried to hide it, but I'm going to do it publicly. Those are some pretty severe consequences. Those are some pretty serious consequences. Would you agree? But I tell you what, we can't escape consequences all the time. We can't always get away with consequences without paying dues on some of the consequences we, we have to face. We see this in families all the time. My wife and I, we do this thing called a genogram. It's where you walk back through your family tree and look at the relationships and what was broken and who divorced and what relationships were estranged and what went wrong where. And you can look back and I can look in my family and I can see the mistakes of my grandfather and how it affected his kids. 
And then I could see that same mistake being passed down to our generation. We in Christian environments call it generational curses. You see, the issue that David didn't deal with, his children had to deal with. The mistakes that David made passed down to the next generation. Those were some serious consequences. I don't know about you, but I don't want my son to have to deal with stuff that I'm too much of a coward to deal with. I don't want my son to have to wrestle with stuff because his dad was too afraid to deal with it. We can think we get away with something, but then we see that same pattern being reproduced in our children. Some of you are dealing with things that didn't come from you, but when you look in your family lineage, it came from somewhere else. I was talking to a young lady, young, I mean 70. And I was sharing something similar to this, and she said, you know what, I can still hear the negative words spoken over me by my stepmother. She's still wrecked by someone else's inability to hold their tongue at 70 years old. How many of you know if you don't deal with your family issues, your family issues will deal with you? And you will find yourself your whole life living out the same pattern of sin and mistakes that the generation before has dealt with. You can't control what was given to you, but you can do something about what happens in the next generation. I hate that there are consequences to sin, but it's true. It's true. See, even some of the consequences I face, can I be super honest with you? One of the consequences I face when, when I mess up, yes, you may not believe it, I still screw up every once in a while. Don't ask my wife because she'd probably tell you several times a day. But one of the consequences I face is the lack of confidence. Now, that may not mean a lot to you, but I live out of my confidence. Either I'm confident or I'm a coward. And so when temptation comes, I have to remember that it'll rob my confidence. And I don't want that to happen. See, if you remember and you think about the consequences that come for you when you mess up, you sin, you miss the mark, then when that sin comes, you don't want, you don't really want it as bad as you thought you wanted it because you don't want to have to deal with the consequences. You see, there's a, in my marriage, I'm careful to kind of interact with women in a way that keeps me safe because I don't want to deal with the consequences of looking in my wife's eyes and seeing her disappointment. I don't want to see that look on her face that I let her down. I, I abandoned my vows. I, I don't want to see that. Consequences. I, I, my wife, she just graduated with her PhD yesterday. I have put in years and years and years of work to get me a sugar mama. And I don't want to be stupid and mess it up. Consequences. Amen. I'm saying it's getting too good now. I'll wreck the thing after we finally got it working. No. 
I need me a sugar mama. And she's cute too. Um, lesson number four. God uses our brokenness to produce something beautiful. Amen. Hallelujah. Glory to God. This is the best news of the day. God uses our brokenness to produce something beautiful. Where do we see that? In verse 24, then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her. That means they did it. And she bore him a son. And he called his name Solomon, and the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan, to the pro- by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah, loved by God, because of the Lord. God took this horrible relationship that started out of adultery and lust, that caused all these ripples of sin and the effect thereof in David's family and took these two people that started so horribly and turned it around to where the next king of Israel would be born. God uses our brokenness to produce something beautiful. The child that would take over the kingdom came from this relationship that started horribly. God is masterful at taking our mess and making a masterpiece. God wants to take our mess, our foolishness, the the wreckage we've created with our lives and create something so much better, so much more beautiful, so much more amazing than anything we were working towards. God isn't trying to leave you in your mess. He's trying to use that mess to give you a testimony to change the world. But we can be so busy hiding out, ashamed of our failures. And God is like, my grace is bigger than your failures. My grace is bigger than that. See, grace is different than mercy. Mercy is you don't get the horrible thing you deserve. But grace is, no, not only do you not get what you deserve, God says, I'm going to bless you. God will take the worst thing in your life and use it for his glory if you will let him you see God doesn't want your failure to be the story of you he doesn't want your mistakes to be what you're known for he wants to take that thing and turn it around and when everybody sees it they go I know there's a God I know that God can restore and redeem and make whole and make new and change that ugly thing and make something beautiful. He wants to take your tattered life and make it a good life. He wants to take your wreckage and he wants to create success out of it. But we have to be bold enough to go and say, God, I give you all my sin so that I can get something I don't deserve. And that's your blessing. Too many of us are being defined by our greatest weakness. Too many of us are defined by our greatest mistake. But God says, if you just give it to me, if you give me that thing, if you, like David, present yourself back to me and say, I need something different. I need to repent. I need to change. God is like, I will take that thing and I will do something amazing with your life. If you be bold enough to give me your sin, I will give you my purity. If you give me your mess, I will give you myself. 
That's what the cross is about. The cross is nailing all, Jesus nailed all of our sins to the cross. And he says, now I'm going to give you my purity, my righteousness, my wholeness. We're going to make an exchange. It's unfair. I know. But you don't have to pay the penalty for your sins anymore. Jesus says, I've paid it all. Your account is clear. You're paid in full. All I need you to do is come to me and repent and I will give you something you couldn't get on your own. I will change your story from a story of sin to a story of success. If you're bold enough, if you're brave enough, if you're willing to follow me, I will change your life in amazing ways. And then at the end of it, we get the gift of heaven and we become sons and daughters of God welcomed into the story of God by a God who loves us with a passionate love and wants us clean and free more than we want to be clean and free. God wants to take our brokenness and create something beautiful. He doesn't want to leave you in the midst of your mess. He's trying to get you out. God loves you. I don't know if you haven't heard that. God loves you. I'm telling you again, God loves you. God loves you. God loves you. And he wants to change your story. God loves you. You don't have to live in that sin anymore. God loves you. God loves you. You don't have to make excuses for the mistakes you made. God loves you. God is trying to change things around. God loves you. God loves you. he loves you so much that he's saying make this exchange with me please and if you be bold enough to say yes to that he will take your mess and make a masterpiece let's pray together father in the name of Jesus I thank you so much that you love us you love us so much that Jesus, you died on a cross so that not only would we get mercy, we'd also get grace. And those that one-two punch would forever deal with our sin issue and give us a life better than the one we were creating for ourselves. God, thank you so much that we can be like David and you can produce something mighty, something great out of the carnage that we've created because of our own decisions. Father, I thank you in the name of Jesus that we would give ourselves to you so that we might get the benefit of knowing you and finding freedom from our sins. Thank you, God, that you bring beautiful things out of the dust. In Jesus' name, amen.